Anyhow, I was challenged because I've been citing Luther so much in our radio show uh, concerning justification that why, why are there so many Lutherans that believe that they're saved by being baptized as infants and thereby have false assurance? And he said you should correct that. If you're going to cite Luther, you need, at least need to make it clear to your listeners that you disagree with him. So I took on the challenge and searched through the complete works of Luther and found seven documents about baptism. And sure enough, Luther teaches what Lutherans believe, that you ought to baptize babies, that babies that are baptized are saved, baptismal regeneration, all of it's right there in Luther. So we did a radio show and cited those things and disagreed with it. But the thing that's interesting about Luther is he has his categories correct, and his categories are a great help to me. All right, and, and it really fits with means of grace in a way that I think most evangelicals don't understand at all. And these categories are directly from Luther. And he said for something to be God's ordinance, which is a good term, and there must be a command from God. We can't just dream these things up and say, well, now God's obligated to meet us because based on what we decided we wanted to do. And I hope you can see the need to understand this because so many seminaries, Bible colleges, churches, and so on today are teaching spiritual disciplines that are never commanded by God and that do not fit these criteria. And that's part of the reason we need this. One of the most popular is silence and solitude not commanded by God, no promise from God, and not all that accessible. I'll talk about that when we get to it. Secondly, there must be a promise from God. God commands and God promises. A promise is, if you do this, then I will fill in whatever the scripture says the promise is. Generally in the New Testament, the promise is that he'll be with us, that he'll be in our midst, that he'll bring us to the eschatological kingdom, that he'll sanctify us. That's the promise. Now, the, take those two S's out of this accessible and make it C's and then put an I where the A was, and you got the correct word, accessible. Now, a few weeks ago, I thought somebody brought something up and it ended up being a discussion of Naaman in the Old Testament, a great illustration of means of grace, even though it only applied to one person. Elisha, in Second Kings 5 is where you find that, by the way, Naaman comes with his leprosy, heard that there was a man of God in Israel, so he comes from his foreign country, comes to Israel, and asks for the man of God to come and uh, see if there's an answer from the God of Israel for his problem. And the answer was just sent to him by, via messenger, go a dip in the Jordan seven times and you'll be cleansed of your leprosy. This was only applied to Naaman, nobody else. But for him, for that one guy, it's a means of grace because he had all these criteria. There was a command from God, from Elisha, 
go dip into Jordan. There was a promise. You will be cleansed. And it was accessible. Now, in this case, just for the one guy, because that's who it was given to. But the accessibility uh, issue comes up later when he gets offended by the whole thing and thinks he's too important for it. And he's going to go home and say, well, we got better water than that. I'm not going to do this. But his, his messenger said, here, do it. What's the problem? It's simple. It's something you can go do. And so Naaman was cleansed of his leprosy because God had provided a means for him. Well, we're talking about means of grace. We're, we're talking about what God has provided under the new covenant that is commanded by God, that is promise, includes promises from God or a promise from God. And it's something that we can avail ourselves of without being some a priori spiritual superstar. Okay? And I'm going to uh, lay this out here. So what I did, frankly, I, I was a little late getting this to Christy, but I woke up Thursday morning thinking about this and thinking, why don't we put verses for all of this and show that what the means of grace are and how they fit the categories. And so I, I did a thing this way, sent it to her, and then she turned it into this. I found, and I also noticed that I had the wrong term for accessible. So this is the, the, I don't know if you can see it up there, but you can on your paper. There's a green paper that has all this laid out. So let's look at what we're finding in Acts chapter 2. Okay, what we're finding in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42, and see if these practices fit the categories that I found in Luther, and I think are valid under the New Covenant. Okay? The first one, let's look at baptism, Acts 2.41. There must be a command from God. Well, is there a command for baptism under the New Covenant, under Christ and his apostles? And as we've already seen, yes, there is, and it's found in Matthew 28:19, right? Go there and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there's a command to baptize. And this is reiterated, and uh, Peter must have understood it that way because he said, repent and be baptized, each of you. Now, in our radio uh, show that'll be put on our website, I think in January. We talked about Luther's application of this is horrible. So that shows why we must judge prophecy and why applications must be logically connected to the text. Let me tell you how Luther interpreted this. He was right, but he interprets this to mean babies. And here's what Luther said. Well, all of the heathen are commanded to be baptized indiscriminately. Babies are at least heathen, so we should baptize them. And then later in church history, well, even earlier in church history, the idea of baptizing heathens was certainly practiced. Charlemagne conquered peoples and forced them to be baptized, telling them that they had their choice between their own blood or water for the element. 
very open-minded. <laughs> now, the question that we would raise is, okay, so let's say you're somebody that lived in what's now France in 18 or what, 19, 9th century, I think it was like 800 and some A.D. when Charlemagne did this. And, he, and so he decided, well, I don't really want to die, I, you know, whatever, I'll just be baptized. Would that be saving faith? Is that a means of grace? Or that is just saving your own skin? <laughs> because you seem better than the alternative. And we would say, no, Luther, that's a false prophecy. And this is what we talked about on the radio. If Luther's right, and I believe that he is, if any lowliest saint can say to the Pope, you prophesy falsely, therefore be silent in the church, I won't listen to you. I think any lowliest saint can say to Luther, you prophesy falsely in the church, I won't listen to you. And I'm doing that right now. And I don't care how many Lutheran friends I lose. You can't countenance false prophecy without being a hypocrite. And I love having friends. I, would, I love having Lutheran and Presbyterian friends. And I'm not breaking fellowship, but I'm saying, don't teach this in the church. It's false prophecy. And then Luther goes so far as to say, infants have faith. His proof text was John the Baptist uh, was felt to leap in his mother's womb. That's proof that infants have faith. And so we went through on the radio and just showed the absurdity of these claims. And Luther said, well, I have faith and I have the Holy Spirit and I was baptized as an infant as a Roman Catholic. So therefore we're saying, we'll take the categories, but we're going to use logic to apply them to the church. And I have to put myself under the same scrutiny But I believe that we have a pattern in Acts 2 because here is the very birth of the church and Peter preached the gospel and people really took their well-being into their own hands in a sense by repenting and believing the gospel because they were going to lose all their old Jewish friends. Yes, uh, we do have a wireless mic and we'll bring it to you. Feel free to... Discuss or challenge or whatever you want to do. Just uh, going back to your comment about um, Luther's... Uh, John left in, in Elizabeth's womb, right? And that's yes. the babies have faith. Well, uh, that's a bad hermeneutic, isn't it? I mean, when you have one example and then try and build a whole doctrine out of one scripture. Yeah, I mean, you've got to judge the, judge the many the by the few. You got to judge yeah. them, right? Yeah. When, when you only have one instance. So. And it, well, then, plus authorial intended. Is that what Luke wanted us to believe? Well, no. If you go back in the context, it shows that the Holy Spirit had come upon Elizabeth. Isn't that his mother, Elizabeth? Right. Okay, and so admit, it doesn't fit the context. It doesn't fit the meaning of the Scripture. It's an invalid application. Therefore, we can judge it to be false. And certainly somebody can say, well, who are you? Who are you to challenge Luther? Well, as I said, who was Luther to challenge the Pope? Are we stuck with error just because it comes from church history? Do we really believe in the priesthood of every believer? 
and that Christians can go to Scripture and see whether this follows. But let's not lose the truth. I say baptism is a means of grace because it fits these categories. There's a command from God, go and make disciples baptizing them. So we're commanded to do this. Well, let's just kind of go across this way. There must be a promise from God. Let's see if this is valid. Well, look at the next verse, verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's the promise. God is with us as we faithfully fulfill the Great Commission and practice what he's ordained. There's a promise of his presence. And that means a lot, doesn't it? That he's with us. And then accessibility. I I just put up a verse that that comes from Acts where people had believed the gospel, but it says in Acts 10, 47, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And so you have people uh, believing the gospel and it was taken for granted that the waters of baptism are available to them. They re- they believe, they receive, they listen, just like they did in Acts chapter 2. This thing of accessible, and I found that in Luther, it's very, very, very important. And it's really what distinguishes the commands that have to do with means of grace from general obedience to whatever else might be told us in the Bible that we ought to do. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, that's the result, not the cause. What we have in the church today is a failure to see these categories, and therefore we turn Christianity into a how-to religion. Do this, 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 this. And if you're good enough, and if you do everything the way you're supposed to, then we'll give you fellowship. And so it's backwards. If I could do everything God wanted without any grace, I wouldn't need the Lord. So that's why baptism fits the category, and I would agree, but you have to make reasonable and logical application. Brian, do you want to give the mic to Rich right next to you there? Uh, So it's got to be ordained by God. Now, at my mom's church, she goes to a big church, mega church, and they have this spontaneous spontaneous baptism on a Sunday morning where they all get together and they go, oh, the pastor gets all everybody all jazzed up and riled up to come forward and get baptized okay. on, on a Sunday morning. Um, what would you say about that? Well, if they believe and they want to be baptized because it was ordained by God, there's nothing wrong with that. But you don't have to have some certain emotional state to do so. Um, I don't know what to say. other. Rick Warren really is big on baptism. His latest thing, 40 Days of Fitness. I saw him interviewed on TV. That happened because he was baptizing 850 people, and he, plus the ones being baptized, this is his testimony, were fat. And it was a lot of work with baptizing 850 fat people. Maybe he should have them tread water for a few minutes before he baptizes them. And so then he starts another 40-day thing, you know, yet another one, and they've been interviewing him on TV about that. We just need to get back to the biblical categories, okay? 
But you got to preach the gospel. Yes, uh, Brian. How about people that uh, when they were saved, that they were in bad uh, theological churches. They're, the 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 teachings were not in line with true biblical teachings. Okay. And those in and you're baptized then. What do you think about multiple baptisms? Uh, I would say that that's not necessary or even recommended. And see, Luther was right in that regard. This goes way back to the third century with the Donatus controversy. Because there, there were people baptized by certain religious leaders, and then later it turns out the religious leader was apostate. And then they, there was this idea that, well, then your baptism is no good because it depended on the spiritual state of the person who did the baptizing. And so as the debate played out, well, so no, you can't say that because then you have to not only know that you're coming in faith, you have to know whether the guy dunking you is pristine and holy or whatever. And so we have to agree that's not the issue. The issue is your own faith in the gospel. Okay, not who does it. And Paul actually said in 1 Corinthians, which we've already looked at, yeah, I'll get you again, Rich, um, that I'm glad I didn't baptize you because they're bragging about it. Oh, I think Apollos is a great guy and he baptized me. I must be really a good Christian. Yeah. So if you got baptized before you knew the gospel, I think is that a legitimate question? Should you get baptized after you understand that's the gospel? Where Luther, see, that's the whole issue with Luther was he was just fiercely against any type of rebaptism, whether somebody baptizes an infant, even in the Catholic Church, or anything else. But. Um, it's an issue that really doesn't come up in the New Testament, does it? Is there, and so I'd be hesitant to make a command from God about rebaptism. Some of these things didn't exist in biblical times. And I would make, if someone was baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church or Lutheran Church and really strongly believes they need to be immersed now that they have faith, We've always made that available. But I wouldn't want people to get into a state where they keep looking back at it and say, well, I was in a bad church when I was baptized, so I'm going to be rebaptized, or I had been backslid. And you end up, I think, Jim, didn't you say that there's churches where you may be baptized a dozen times? Every time you have a problem, you got to try to get rebaptized, see if it fixes you. And we want to avoid that. We want to remember that we are buried with him and baptized. There's no idea that you do this twice. And the illustration Paul gives in First Corinthians 10 was that going through the red or going through the yeah the Red Sea, uh, waters close up behind you. Don't go back. It's the place of death. Now let's move forward now to, to the Word of God as a means of grace. And I have some passages. Is there a command from God? Well, this one's easy. Yeah, we're commanded to preach the word. Here's what it says. 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4. Preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but want to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now, in the midst of a bunch of people that don't want to hear the word, the prescription by Paul is preach the word. And therefore, teaching and preaching the word of God is always the central and primary means of grace. We believe that those who sit under the teaching of the truth and hear the truth and are thereby convicted by the Holy Spirit concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, that God uses that truth to engender faith and hope and ultimately obedience by a, by a, a work of grace, by the Holy Spirit. I believe that with all my heart. And that we sometimes in the bigger Christian world don't believe that is why we got the mess that we have today. It doesn't do people any good. There's no command from God for the church to provide good emotional feelings for everybody. This morning, as is typical, I couldn't sleep very long. I could never sleep very long. I got up, turned on the channel that I usually watch, and they were talking about Joel Osteen is going to be on this show this afternoon, some show. And they were saying, oh, he's so happy. He's always smiling. Everybody feels good. I don't believe that does anybody any good. What good is that? It's not a means of grace to hear uplifting anecdotes. It's not a means of grace to have your ears tickled. That's what it says. That's not what they want, but do it anyhow. We're commanded to do what people may not want. And that they don't want it is more reason to do it. And seeker-sensitive people who have been seduced by the church growth movement will not do this because it's fatal to their whole plan. They want to sneak some Bible truth in under the guise of making it look no different than anything else they've heard. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why won't Rick Warren preach Christ Sunday after Sunday from the pulpit? That's what I asked for the one time I got to talk to him. I said, preach Christ, and here's what it sounds like. Well, he can't, because his church is the community of not, and not the called out ones. So they won't tolerate it. They won't listen to it. They'll get baptized, because then they're taking some further, deeper life or higher order step or whatever, to 101, 102, 103, 104, and then or whatever, you come into home plate. <laughs> By the way, now you can't run over the catcher anymore. I don't know how they're going to work that out. But whatever the case, we need so badly to hear the truth. I'm, it's really true. When I was at my worst, 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 in a lot of ways, physically and mentally, the one thing that was healing balm was the Word of God. When I was in such bad shape as hardly even functional, the Word of God would snap me back into hope and reality. 
And when Eric and I would talk on the phone about the word, I was like, oh, yes, everything's okay. Let's talk about the scripture. And that'll have that effect on everyone who's a Christian. We've already got guilt. In this regard, I've got to have have to agree with Luther. Luther was absolutely right. People are full of guilt. And you can lay out all kinds of stuff that will give them more guilt. And he wanted people to know the forgiveness of sins. And I praise Luther for that. And no sooner had we done those two sessions on Luther on baptism to rebuke him, I was right back to quoting him favorably again. I'm not going to give that up. I love Luther and his material. But infant baptism is not biblical. And he wanted to provide people with a grounding to know their sins are forgiven. And that's right. The Roman Catholic Church had seven sacraments. There were no boundaries. There must be a command from God. Well, they had added all these innovations with no command from God. So where's your faith? You have seven sacraments and all these other special works of super irrigation. Now, you're not, if, you're, if you do this, the basic sacraments, you really aren't that great of a Christian. You can be a monk and do works above and beyond super irrigation. And then you're even better. There's always this seduction to be a better Christian than these other slobs out there. And no, we're in the same family of God by the same means, and there's no works of super irrigation. Okay, so the word of God, God will use. Uh, There must be a promise from God, and this comes from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his prayer in John 17. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Verse 18, John 17, as you sent me into the world, also I send them into the world, very much like Matthew 28. Verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So God's word is truth. God's word sanctifies. So there's a promise from God that if we sit under Bible teaching in faith, that God will use that to sanctify us. Does that make sense? And that doesn't just apply to the exhortation section. For instance, in Galatians, we spent all this time in Galatians 1, 2, 3, and 4. We'll spend whatever time is necessary in 5 and 6, but it's not the commands in 5 and 6 are more sanctifying than the discussion of justification by faith through grace in the early parts. It's all the word of God. And so when we degenerate the church into how-to seminars, we don't help the saints, we harm them. And that's what's wrong with Joel Osteen. Everything's a how-to seminar. If we just had the secret, there's no secret, this is it, it's the Word of God. Is it accessible? Romans 10.8, what does it say? The Word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. We, God did not make us go sit on a mountain in Tibet in solitude and silence for so long to see if the word comes to us. 
He gave it directly to us in human languages so that we can understand it, hear it, and believe it objectively. It wasn't hard for Naaman to understand Elisha's teaching. For him, go to the Jordan and dip seven times. It's not hard to understand. That's what his servants said. Why are you going away? Well, I thought he'd come and wave his hands and say some great thing. No, it's, it's here. It's accessible. And we can understand it. Prayer. There must be a command from God. Well, in the imperative, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. And that doesn't mean join a monastery. It means be a person who brings life's issues to the Lord in prayer. And that characterizes our approach to life, that we're prayerful, and it's a privilege from God that we can pray corporately and individually, and we can go to the throne of grace. There must be a promise from God. Well, there is. Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, is that a promise? It can't be any more clear. Obviously, it's a promise. Then we go to the throne of grace and we find mercy and grace. Notice what we find, first of all, is mercy. We're sinners. We don't earn the right for prayer or to be prayed for or to be heard by God by our higher status, but we are privileged to find mercy through the forgiveness of sins. And we go to the throne of grace and we find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.15. We're talking about accessibility. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus Christ made a way for us through his blood, which was poured out on the heavenly mercy seat. The claim in Hebrews is that he made once for all decisive purgation so that we have found mercy, our sins are forgiven, He sits at the right hand of God and ever lives to make intercession for us and that we go to him, that he hears us and that he intercedes for us and that God answers prayer. So this is accessible to every Christian. There's no secret. What a mess the church has put herself in over the last 150 years. How many books have been published since the late 19th century, on all the secrets. It's absurd. Something is either revealed or it's not revealed. Okay? If it's revealed, it's not a secret. If it's not revealed, some person who's some mystic or some holy, pious person beyond us ordinary ones It's not going to go figure it out and find it and write a book about it. There is no such thing. There's no secret to anything that we can find in some guy's book unless it's already revealed in the Bible. And the secret in the 
mystery of the Bible is that God, through Christ, is saving both Jews and Gentiles, putting them into one church. The secret things belong to God, and they can't be known. I will never spend one cent, unless I'm doing heresy research, on a book that claims to have the secret to something. Just tell me what's revealed. There's nothing else that we can know. There's no secret to be discovered by some Dalai Lama sitting on the Mount in Tibet. It's not Christianity. Brian, you got the, is it on? Is it green? It is. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to talk about prayer a little bit, Bob, and maybe you could expound on this. Okay. I personally feel I don't have a very good prayer life. Okay. And that may be true for other Christians as well. What I do do, and this, I don't know if this is odd or not, but throughout my day, as things come up in my mind, I'm not, I don't want to say talking, but I'm, I feel as if I'm praying. You see what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I'm shooting things <laughs> yeah. to the Lord. You know what I mean? I do that too. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, good. So I'm as crazy as you are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's two of us that don't have a lot of sense here. Okay. My neighbor, what can I say? Okay. It's a great neighborhood. Um, how would you define prayer? Well, it's defined here in Scripture to go to the Lord through our Savior, Jesus Christ, who's the great intercessor. It said in his name, right? Right. By his authority and by his person, we can go to God. See, people don't like that. Well, I don't know why, but if you know any Roman Catholic, that's not sounding so great like Jesus would even care about us. Yeah. So we got to go through Mary. But there's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. There we go. But... People think that, oh, you got to go off in a little prayer room. you no. got to be all by yourself. Okay. You have to... okay, get the chart in front of you. Go back. There must be a command from God. Now, in the case of Naaman, he had to go to the Jordan dip seven times, and he'd be cleansed of his leprosy. And had he decided, I don't want to listen to the God, I'm going to go home, try to water there, it wouldn't have done any good. So all we need to know is what's revealed. Does the Bible reveal that we have to be on some physical, in some physical geographical place to reach to the throne of grace? Uh, Bring it back to Eric while while we're still talking about this. It doesn't say that. It does talk about our motives, making yourself to look like the Dalai Lama or some great glorious rabbi or whatever. You're not heard by abundance of words. You're not heard by impressing other people about how holy you are. You're heard because you believe the promise of God. Amen. Well said, Bob. You know, one of the issues is if we start saying, well, look, I have to do prayer at 530 in the morning because my neighbor does it, or I have to go to some special place in my home, we can end up becoming false lawgivers to ourselves. We're binding ourselves to things that the Scripture hasn't laid out. And that's exactly what you're saying, Bob, is look, we're not bound to pray at a certain time or even so many times. The command is general enough so that we can interact with God at our own leisure as the Spirit leads. And what's interesting is even in Romans 8, listen to this. This is comfort to you and to any, all of us who never seem to pray as we ought or maybe even pray for the wrong things. Romans eight twenty six. 
Paul says in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And so Bob had just mentioned we have Jesus making intercession for us in the heavenly realm, and he sent the Spirit, this great gift from God, and he intercedes for us as we pray because we don't even know how we, how we ought to pray. And so we've got two members of the Trinity actively yeah. helping us out. That's and pretty good news. Groanings that we don't even understand. Exactly. He knows what we need. Not and he us. hears us. And here's our accessibility. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted as we are. And so these books that have been published for 150 years perish them. We're sitting here thinking we didn't do it right. We didn't do it enough. We didn't do it long enough. We're not like praying hide. That was a book going around when I was in Bible college. He prayed until his body was distorted. Well, okay, so he's better than the Dalai Lama or some monk chained to a granite wall in shackles. Or This is nonsense. Jesus didn't say this. For most of my Christian life, I was intimidated by all of this, thinking God wouldn't hear me because I wasn't good enough. I wasn't praying hide. I wasn't the guy with the prayer secrets or the, the Zinzendorf. You know, we were pounded by some of these pietistic idiots in church history. These people would go volunteer to be slaves, so in their slavery... They'd go into some remote place they couldn't go. Well, they're free to do that, but they shouldn't be put out as better than us ordinary Christians. Does the Bible command us to volunteer to be slaves in order to get on a slave ship and go somewhere? This Zinzendorf, I declare him a false prophet and a wicked teacher, not some pious guy to make the rest of us feel guilty. Uh, Jim. In Matthew 6, 5, uh, Jesus said, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Amen. So here we have a basic blessing. That's what I want us to totally be excited about. The Creator, the Savior, the Lord of the universe, who loves us, who can sympathize with our weaknesses and knows that we're disgusting sinners, but he forgives us, gave us access to the throne. I also say this about Jesus compared to anybody else. He shares the attributes of deity. So Jesus is omniscient. Do you think Mary can hear a billion people at the same time? No, she's a created being. What about Jesus? He's omniscient. He can. Does that make sense? And so there's no big list of how to, how, of all these things that we might think are going to make us better than some other Christian or worse than some other Christian. Forget it. 
And am I worse? And I've been sick and feeling like I'm going to drop dead a few times in the last three years. And sometimes all I got left is, help me, dear Lord Jesus, help me. That's all I can do. Dear Lord Jesus, help me. Is he not going to hear that because it's not eloquent enough? If you ever get in a state where you think you're going to die and you're so despairing of your own salvation that you think that when you do die, maybe you'll just drop into hell, I promise you, you'll say, dear Lord Jesus, help me. Not that that's more pious, but if that's all there is, he'll hear it. Yes, uh, Norm. Green light means on. Okay, good. Um, I'm glad you talk about the command. If something is a command, to differentiate between that and an example, because we see in the Bible that, like Daniel prayed three times a day, and he prayed with the window open and so forth. And, I mean, that was the way he did it. But I've heard Christians say, well, that's an example of how we should pray three times a day and pray in that way. But that's, that's... Taking it wrongly, I would no. say. No, that doesn't make any more sense than saying we should go dip in the Jordan seven times like Naaman. And in fact, it's even less so because there's no command to Daniel he should pray that way. He did it. Okay, and so the thing that's oppressive, and I had to read these books in Bible college, is all these books about some missionary who was Ten times more holy than all the rest of us miserable saps. <laughs> These hagiographies. I can't be guilted into thinking these guys are actually holy. I don't buy it. Okay, maybe they're decent Christians. I would grant that. But what, what's the point of these books? To make the rest of us feel guilty like we're not good enough and God will never listen to us. Yes, Mike. I, I want to go back to uh, Matthew 6, 6, when someone uh, mentioned, was it Eric, about going into a prayer closet or some uh, such thing. And, and uh, I'm sorry, it's 6, yeah, it is 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your father who is in secret. Um, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So I think this is where we get the prayer closet teaching from, from this particular... Yeah, but the idea but, is that the closet's closer to God. No, no, no. I think that, and I'm, that's my question, is the intent of the authorial intent here is that, you know, verses or uh, in con- contrast to yes. praying in public. Yeah, it's like, and, you know, and the issue in that passage, thank you, Mike, very yeah. good point, is motives to be seen of men. You may end up praying in public for whatever reason, and if the motive isn't to make yourself look holy in somebody else's eyes, it's not forbidden, because they haven't asked public prayers. Okay? And sometimes it just blurps out of you. That happened to me. You know, I've been getting blood transfusions every seven to ten days, since a year ago, October, and I was at the doctor, and it was, look, where are we at? So over two weeks, well, over two weeks since the transfusion, they came back with the number, and it was above the, the count for a transfusion. Never gone three weeks. And it just came out of me. Thank you, Lord. Well, I said that publicly in front of the nurses. I wasn't trying to do that. I just... 
It was spontaneous. And um, it doesn't make me holy. It makes me a sinner who thanks God for just at least this one time in this one situation found a, a relief and a special little bit of hope in this thing. But my hope ultimately is in the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Well, so does that make sense now? Command from God, a promise from God, an accessibility. You know, these people with their high and holy claims to go into a monastery, there's nothing accessible. Simon Stylites has sat on a pole for all these years praying. That's not accessible. That's foolishness. Well, let's go to fellowship. Now, fellowship, I want to make a caveat here. Uh, in order not to get too far away from church history, where we, it's like I'm adding things. Well, I'm just in Acts 2.42. Fellowship is a reminder that we need to do these things corporately, not that we can't and shouldn't study the Bible ourselves and pray ourselves, but that the corporate aspect is of the essence of the church that we have fellowship with one another and the Lord, not just privately the Lord, right? So fellowship is something that we do, but what happens in the midst of our fellowship should be grounded in the promise of God, of the teaching of the word and the prayer and breaking of bread and so on. But so it says here in Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking our own assembling Together, as, as, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here's a command from God for us to assemble together as Christians. There are other ones. There must be a promise from God. Matthew eighteen twenty. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So as we gather, there's a promise of the presence of the Lord with us, even if it's just a small assembly. It doesn't have to be a big one. So there's the promise. Means of grace are accessible. Here's what it says in 1 John 1, 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that would be John's readers, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So we come and have fellowship with the Lord and with one another. I love that. You may not think that this seems so obvious. Well, we get together, we hear the word, we break bread at times, and we pray for one another. The elders are available to pray we might think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, that's exactly what Naaman thought about dipping into Jordan. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this is what God gave us. And what is it doing? It's changing us. It's imperceptible in some cases. It's a slow process. If one that we might think is not going quickly enough. But I'm telling you, I know it's true. I know it's true because of God's word and personal experience. I'm a totally different person than I was a year or two ago when I thought it was so hopeless. It was so bleak and so hopeless and so dark and 
awful, I can't tell you. But now, I'll, by God's grace, I'm restored to fellowship. And God uses that. And I don't feel like I'm going to drop into hell. And I do have assurance and so on. And God is gracious and it's true for you. And you can say the same thing. And many of you have. It's accessible. This isn't some up in heaven that you have to be go bring it down like all these guys writing a book, I visited heaven. Or down in the shield. Some people wrote that book, I visited hell. No, the word is near you, even in your mouth. <laughs> Who's got the mic? Mike's got the mic. Barb in the back wants it. And then we'll do the Lord's Supper, and, and we'll have covered our concept here. Yes, M- Barb. Uh, for fellowship, uh, you mentioned accessibility, and for those of us gathered in this room, we certainly have access to fellowship with born-again believers. Um, But many of the people who will listen to your talk here on the Internet don't have access to fellowship with believers. The accessibility is in question for them. Can you perhaps give a word of encouragement? Very good point. Thank you, Barb. Great question. I was reading Luther, and that's part of how I run into it. Because this, for one thing, we want, we must say that there are always going to be unique situations that God will give special grace to. And there's not much. There may be a person. Think of that pastor who's in Iran in a jail cell, kept from the church, kept from the his family, kept from everything. God has his own extraordinary ways of caring for people in extraordinary situations. Now, let me quote Luther because he talks about that. So let me do do so without ado. This is Luther's Works, Volume 12, where I found this one. Says Luther, so this in brief is my answer to the question about those who live under tyrants guy in Iran. Blessed are they, be they scattered among the Turks or under the Pope. Notice how both would be equally bad. (laughs) Who are robbed of the word, but would sincerely like to have it. And meanwhile, until their lot improves, gratefully accept the fragments which come to them. If they are not far from places where God's word is preached, the holy sacrament, meaning the Lord's Supper, is administered according to Christ's command, they may, of course, travel to such places, make use of that treasure. As indeed many do, and on account, are punished in body and possessions by their godless governments. If they live far away from such places, let them not stop sighing for the means of grace. It's right that they desire it. Okay, and the Lord Jesus Christ will surely hear their sighing and in time restore their fortunes. But unhappy and more than unhappy are those that have this treasure at their doorsteps in abundance and still despise it. In the case of such, the word of Christ will be fulfilled. Matthew eight eleven. Many will come from the east and west 
and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In the case of others, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. Let this be said by way of introduction. Now let's consider the psalm. Okay, that's just the introduction. Does that make sense? Some who are robbed of pure teaching of the word of God and fellowship because of living under Turks, as Luther said, they should sigh for it. They should hunger and thirst for that. And if it comes by way of the Internet, then they can be fed. But a bigger question is, why would you sit where you could have that and listen to foolishness and lies instead? Because you don't want to hear it. You don't want to understand it. That's the bigger question. So that's Luther Barb. I'll give, I'll give you this after church. You can have my copy of it. Thanks for answering that. I, I have no time, but let me cover the last one. We'll do it in more detail later. The Lord's Supper. The scriptures are there. First uh, Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26. So I'll read it. Is there a command from God? Yes, Jesus said, do this. It's in the imperative in the Greek. We're commanded by God to keep the Lord's Supper. There must be a promise from God. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, Matthew 26, 29, until that day when I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. We proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. He will come for us. And we'll have table fellowship with all the patriarchs, as Luther said. Last, must be accessible. That's what caused Paul to rebuke the Corinthians. They made it not that way for bad reasons. So then, my brethren, when you come to eat together to eat, wait for one another. It was a sin against God that the Lord's table became inaccessible because of the wickedness of some of the people in the church. They said, you can't eat with the rest of us. That's wicked, right? Because God wants it accessible. The only thing that should ever keep us away from the Lord's table is if we're under church discipline, in which case we're forbidden from all fellowship and we're removed from the means of grace until there's repentance. And in that repentance, Persons to be brought fully back in. So do you see the category? Now what I was going to do, as we have to close here, is to show a command that was not a means of grace, but it's the outcome that you would be looking for. Be holy. So we have an imperative calling, but it's not something we can just go do. We believe the promise of God is that if we do come in faith under the means of grace. This one fails the test of accessibility. How do we know when we're holy enough? When we feel that way? When a religious leader says that? No. We know that we want to be holy and we want to be like our Lord Jesus Christ, but it's a lifelong process. So the command to be holy in and of itself is a means of grace in the sense that it's the word of God, but it's not accessible. Does that make sense? So when we say sit yourself under the means of grace, it doesn't mean passivity, and it doesn't mean just go to church because it may not do any good to do that. You might hear Joel Osteen. It means what we were looking at here, 
that are biblical provisions that Christ made for his church that contain the promise if we come in faith. And faith is certainly the, how would you say it, the unifying principle in all of this. And Luther would say the same thing. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, to allow us to, to talk about these things, to think about them, to apply them. We ask you for grace to help us as we go forward to make this the key issue at Gospel of Grace Fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. God bless you.